Welcome to Officer Wellness with Brian Manley, a candid and informative discussion between retired police chief Brian Manley and law enforcement leaders about the many aspects of officer wellness. We hope you enjoy this episode and find it informative. Officer Wellness is powered by Off-Duty Management. Hello, everyone. My name is Brian Manley. I'm the president here at Off-Duty Management. Uh, I recently retired from the Austin Police Department after spending 30 years uh, there. Uh, my last four and a half as the chief of police, and I'm grateful to have with me here today a, a true friend and the leader of the uh, health and wellness efforts at the Austin Police Department, Rick Randall. Uh, Rick is the senior chaplain at the Austin Police Department and the director of the Health and Wellness Bureau there, uh, a good friend of mine and a partner uh, with me back when I was at the agency. But Rick, please, uh, for the listening audience, please tell them just a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's really good to be with you today. Um, so my training uh, was as a chaplain, as a, as a minister. I did that for 44 years. But in that process, I, be, I got interested in doing chaplaincy in law enforcement. So for the last 25 years, I've been a chaplain with the Austin Police Department. And over that course of time, got more and more interested in uh, officer safety, wellness, uh, leadership issues with the department. And the department gave me opportunity to be engaged with those until uh, well, ultimately we came to uh, a number of years ago when you turned to me. Well, actually, when you took over as interim chief of the department, announced in your meetings we are, our emphasis is going to be on wellness. It's going to be my number one priority as your chief. And Rick Randall is going to lead those efforts. <laughs> and I heard it when everybody else did. Um, but my, while in my ministerial career, I was also chairman of health services for the American Red Cross uh, Bear County chapter and chairman uh, for three years of the HIV Education and Risk Reduction Committee uh, for the Texas Department of Health. So I've always had one foot in the health and wellness arena, even uh, doing ministry. And uh, that's kind of how I got where I am today. So Rick, I know at the onset here, I just want to highlight the fact that when we talk about officer health and wellness, we truly are talking about the health and wellness of the entire organization to include the civilian employees who are so critical in what we do day in and day out because they face the same stressors, they see the same horrific acts committed, and, and unfortunately they suffer from some of the same side effects from a career in law enforcement. So having said that, um, if you can just... Just in general, what do you see as officer health and wellness? What all does it encompass? So for me, the whole wellness addresses the issues of the total person. We're talking about physical wellness, knowing that uh, law, in law enforcement, we have the highest incidence of heart disease, hypertension, and diabetes of any profession in the country. So health, physical wellness is a big part of it. Certainly COVID has highlighted the importance of physical wellness efforts. Emotional health and wellness is absolutely paramount. Not only do we have people who have served in combat situations who have come in to the profession bringing some post-traumatic stress issues with them, uh, but anyone who does a 911 type job over a period of time is accumulating trauma. And at some point, that cumulative stress is going to play out in negative ways if they don't have if they don't have opportunities to positively address it. So that's the emotional wellness piece. And then what a lot of departments don't think about is the spiritual wellness piece. 
And the spiritual wellness piece isn't about religion. It's about what happens when with the moral injury that occurs uh, regularly uh, with officers uh, when they take a call, that the what you see in terms of there's offense to your sense of right and wrong. You see the ugliest side of, of human nature. You, you're lied to. So things like trust and beauty, goodness and hope, those things are corroded regularly in the job. And I think a full wellness program finds ways to address all three of those dimensions because if you leave one piece un- unaddressed, it influences the others. You know, I think that's the key issue, the comprehensive approach that has to be taken for a program to be successful. I, I remember, you know, when I joined 30 years ago, everyone understood that policing was a tough job. You were going to get hurt. I mean, that was just a part of the job. And it was deemed that it was okay if you were hurt, you know, roughly from the neck down, right? Because that's the nature of the job. But if you were hurt from the neck up, you know, back then it was considered weakness. And I think that the profession has come a long way. I think we have a long way to go. Um, But you said a few things in there that were key. And that was, you know, the true recognition of PTSD that exists among law enforcement today, whether it's PTSD that they brought with them from previous service in in, in the military or PTSD that that officers accumulate doing the job. You know, I I know I had equated it to that every time an officer takes a call, they, they pick up a pebble. Um, and that pebble is the memory of whatever they had to handle on that call, you know, and oftentimes given the nature of the job, it's not necessarily something that's positive, rewarding, or fulfilling. And, you know, after five years, 10 years, 15 years, that sack gets pretty heavy. And I think that is, you know, what we were addressing there at the Austin Police Department and what you are so skilled at and have helped so many other agencies with. And that is taking that moment to unpack that bag every once in a while. And um, when we look at the health and wellness and all of those components. How, how do you build a program for those that are listening that may be interested in moving forward? What are the triggers? What do we look for? How do we identify that officer that may be in need of help? Because, you know, we've got a proactive approach and a reactive approach. Reactive is easy. You know, the critical incidents, we're going to get in there. But how do we proactively address this? Yeah, if I could, a friendly amendment on that last statement that you made. Our reactive approaches often are disciplinary in nature. So uh, when an officer, for example, with post-traumatic stress, and I know this is an incident, uh, this is a an example you and I are very familiar with, but an officer that has post-traumatic stress who, because of the post-traumatic stress, has poor impulse control and, and, and uses alcohol to self-medicate, runs out of his a medication and decides to go get some more while he's still under the influence gets a DWI that puts the agency in a disciplinary posture where the, the only remediation isn't to help the officer. It's to eliminate the problem. And that that's a horrible situation to be in. So being proactive, anticipating these things, finding ways to deal with them before it becomes a, a point of no return for an officer's career or an employee's career. That's what's critical. Uh, And uh, if you think about what triggered these conversations about wellness, the, the primarily it was officer suicide. That's where the, the whole conversation began to intensify as we realized year after year after year, the, one of the primary killers of police officers was suicide. And, and that's using conservative, uh, 
def definitions for suicide. Um, so having proactive, finding ways to be able to see signs when a person's behavior changes and show up, when um, anger is, well, I'll say it this way, there are three emotions that are associated with stress. One is depression, one is anxiety, and the third is anger. I would submit that in most agencies, if you had an employee that was manifesting depression or anxiety, you probably would find a way to move them off the line. Uh, so that consequently, employees are not likely to uh, reveal if they're suffering depression or anxiety. But anger is common. <laughs> it's almost like if you come to show up and say, man, I'm really angry today, that you'll be told, get in line. So is everybody else. Um, but for a supervisor, that anger can be a, a great indicator that here's a person who's really making an outcry. And that anger could be seen in video uh, interaction with, uh, with the citizens, with the, with the community. Uh, could be seen in ha having a short fuse going off when there's a policy presented or whatever. This person just goes on a rant. Identifying that manifestation of anger is probably the first early warning symbol that's easy for a supervisor uh, to latch onto and say, I need to have a conversation with this person, see if there's something going on here. And I think that first line supervisor sits in that unique position because they are the ones who know their officers the best and hopefully are the ones that have taken an interest to where they will realize that change in behavior, however slight it may be, that could be that early indicator of a problem. Um, I, I remember, you know, an incident that, again, we had back home where uh, we had a critical incident. An officer was involved in a shooting and there was a second officer present who didn't fire their weapon. And our system at that time addressed that primary officer because we understood the, you know, the aftermath of being involved in a critical incident and the, the likelihood that they would need to have potentially counseling and services. But at that point, we weren't advanced enough with our program to realize that there was another officer present and that experienced that same situation from a different perspective and may actually suffer with a different set of issues and the question of why didn't that officer fire? What was the reason? And they were still faced with that same that same threat. And, and again, we know that unfortunately that officer ended up engaging in some of the coping methods that you were discussing earlier. And so um, I know that's one of the advances that we had made was to be inclusive of every officer that was on scene when that critical incident happened. Um, you, you mentioned something earlier about that, that was a, an early warning symbol and, and all of that. Do you think early warning systems are effective in, in this area? You know, we, we track officers use of sick time. Are they calling in sick either the first day or the last day of the week? Um, are they having an excessive number of complaints? Do, do you think that those are effective measures to insulate ourselves in this area? So, uh, the answer to your question is yes and no. Um, yes, they can be effective if they have a wellness component linked in. A lot of the things uh, that we measure in early warning systems or GAP programs have uh, punitive measures attached. So the, the result is that people, there's not the idea that there's uh, help coming if, if you, if you uh, trigger 
the the uh, the gap system or you trigger the early warning system, it's not seen as okay. That means I'm going to get help. It means I'm going to have to I'm going to have to justify uh, what I did. So that that mitigates against the helpfulness of early warning. The second thing I would say about early warning is usually by the time the early warning system is activated, it's already been a while. Like you don't know, it's months after whatever the incident was that triggered these behaviors that resulted in uh, uh, warning flags. A frontline supervisor has much more immediate observational powers so that they could see before that system kicks in. I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't have early warning systems, but those really should be a fail-safe uh, backup for a supervisor uh, who is, because the supervisor should be able to identify it in day-to-day behavior, reviewing body cam footage, uh, et cetera, uh, much earlier than an early warning system would indicate. So listening to that, actually, the thought that came to my mind was trust. The system doesn't work if there's not trust within the agency that it is not disciplinary in nature. It is not intended to be punitive. And we all know that cops, uh, we, we tend to be a little bit suspicious uh, given our experience and our training. And so um, efforts that an agency should undertake in that area of building trust. And and I guess I would preface that with, I, I can remember both how happy and sad I would be when I would get that call from you and all you would simply tell me is, we saved one. You couldn't tell me anymore because that would violate the confidentiality, but it was heartwarming because it told me that our system was working, people trusted the system, and that we had someone that was going to get some help that they needed. But it was heartbreaking because it was yet another member of our family, our agency family, that was struggling with the issues that they face every single day. So those calls were both rewarding and challenging at the same time, uh, but it gets to that core issue of trust. How do you successfully build trust in an organization so that officers will feel comfortable volunteering to enter into the help arrangements through their their health and wellness program versus being sent there? That's a great question. a pretty complicated, complicated question, I got to say. And uh, re- referring to our relationship, when we built the health and wellness division at the Austin Police Department, you and I had pretty lengthy conversations about what it should be for and what it shouldn't be for. And the fact that you, number one, gave wellness the standing that it had in the department. So we were functioning at an executive level in the department with direct access, directly reporting to you, gave it immediately a credibility for the program. The second thing was everybody in the program, in the agency looked to that and said, okay, wellness must be important. And all of a sudden wellness became almost the first question people asked instead of the last one. Uh, So if uh, someone was going to be disciplined, uh, it wasn't unusual for part of their chain of command to reach out and say, well, what's, how has wellness been involved with this person? And that, so we, the, what I'm driving at here is a, you have to create a culture where number one, people don't feel like they're going to be damaged their reputation or they're going to lose their position if they reach out for help. Uh, They know that that's an acceptable thing to do. 
having leaders like yourself who were transparent enough to say, hey, I've, I've had this problem. I've been down this path uh, and I got help and it made a difference. That's huge. Uh, so people, uh, the, in, in general, the rank and file tend to watch what happens when someone does step out to get help. And if that's successful and it doesn't, it doesn't negatively impact their career and they're able to get better and, and stay functional, then that, that success breeds success. And that's where we are as an agency now that, um, there are literally hundreds of officers and civilian employees who have, who we've been able to help to get in, for example, to get into a rehab program. Uh, they went away, they got their, uh, they got the care that they needed. They're now operating healthy in sobriety and it didn't hurt them. It, so they are now our best advocates for telling their coworkers, Hey, if you, if you had a problem, you need to do what I do did reach out. Uh, wellness is there for you. The peer support team is there for you. Uh, and that's what, that's what I would say. The number one thing is the agency has to build a culture where it's acceptable for people to say, hey, I need help. And that's a difficult step. I remember our early days. I mean, part of it is is as simple as where do you locate it? Now, you talked on an org chart the importance of having it you know, at such a high level because it was our priority that it does report directly to the chief and that it's part of the executive team. But where does that officer have to go to speak to a counselor, to speak to a chaplain? Because until we break down the stigma and really build the trust in agencies that may be you know, trying to build that in their organization, you need to make sure that that's physically located somewhere where they're not being paraded through the department to walk into the door that says, you know, staff psychologist or something like that. And so I, I just remember a lot of our early lessons that we learned in, in, in building this program. Yeah, I think our, uh, I know that our number one tool in the toolbox was our peer support team. And we have, we have two layers of that peer support team. Uh, thanks to your efforts, we have uh, a number of officers who are full-time employed to do peer support. And then we have a, a cadre, a large cadre of trained volunteer peer support officers for whom peer support is a, an, a, an adjunct function they to their normal regular job. And the reason that's advantageous to us is they are really the first people that a supervisor picks up the phone to call when they notice there's a problem with one of their employees. They are the first person one of those employees calls when they're having a problem because they know that's a completely confidential relationship and they can have it in their own workplace. They can have it in the parking lot. Uh, they can have it at a Starbucks, that conversation with that peer support team member. And that peer support team member has the list of resources. So then we can start arranging who do you need to meet with and where do you need to go? The idea of confidentiality is as critical as the idea of it being acceptable to reach out for help. It, it, all it takes is one time to violate that confidentiality. If you knew the name of that person that I had to put into alcohol rehabilitation and that got back and their shift starts talking about them, that's the end of the program right there. So, um, Having that peer support team helps us keep that level of confidentiality uh, so it doesn't immediately rise up to kind of be noised abroad and hurt somebody in terms of their reputation.
I couldn't agree more. And, and again, the ability to have a peer support team, because let's face it, when we are facing crises, when we're having challenges or difficulties, it's much easier to talk to someone that you've either got that strong relationship with because you're working out of the same substation with them. You're working on the same shift with them. They've lived the same life you've lived. They've taken those same calls. They've dealt with the stresses. And so I do believe that a successful program has to grow from that. It has to get its credibility through members of the organization that are willing to help, that get the training so that they know how best to help, and that are then inserted throughout the organization so that it is well-known, whether it's headquarters, substations, again, officers or civilian units, your comm center, 911, your forensic center, that there are people there that their job is to help. Their job is to listen. Because if you're able to do that, they may actually beat that first-line supervisor to recognizing that issue. They can spend their days just inserting themselves in the lives of the officers, checking in on them, getting to know them on that personal level, knowing their families. And then as, you know, as, a, as a byproduct, they're going to know what their issues they may be facing are, and they're going to be able to, to help them with that. All of that, again, I think builds the credibility of the program and build the trust that's so necessary. I know. Yeah. If I could go ahead, please. If I could, if I could just share a a quick story, a couple of years ago, I was visiting one of our substations, having a conversation with some supervisors because there was an an issue they wanted some help, uh, some help with that was in my wheelhouse. And there was a, a corporal that was in the room with us and when we were done discussing the issue, I was getting ready to leave. He says, in, in, with an earshot of everybody that's in the room, he said, hey, I want to tell you something. And I said, and this was a guy that um, you or I would would say he, he runs with his hair on fire. I mean, he is a hard charger, worked in our organized crime division, was a downtown uh, officer for many years, worked 6th Street, uh, a, a guy who really knows how to handle business. And... Um, uh, somebody you'd say is pretty tough. And he said, I got to tell you something. A couple of years ago, I was in a really, really bad place. And uh, I was, I pulled my car over on I-35 and I was sitting there and I had my service weapon in my hand and held it up to my mouth. And I was sitting there and said, you're either going to kill yourself or you're going to call peer support. And he said, I put the gun down. I picked up the phone. I called peer support. I got some help and I am a huge advocate for peer support today. I mean, he's saying that in front of other sergeants and corporals in front of other supervisors. To me, that was not only a win, that was a, a an opportunity to expand uh, the acceptance of the program, get people to go, wow, this, this really is a good thing to have. And if we're not investing in our officers and our civilians, if we're not opening doors for them to get that kind of help, then we are truly missing out. Um, you know, I, I know as a police administrator, as a chief, we would go to the nth degree to ensure that we were protecting our officers from all of the threats that they would face, whether it's buying the best tactical equipment, the newest device that's out there that will help them defend themselves on the streets, ensuring that they have adequate body armor, that they have the body bunker shields, that they've got the ballistic helmets, that we're buying the safest cars that have all of the safety improvements in them. But so often we were missing that key component of protecting themselves 
protecting them from themselves um, because of the the example you just gave. And, and, and there's not a more chilling example you could give, but also not a more satisfying one because a life was saved because of a program like this. You've been listening to Officer Wellness with Brian Manley, powered by Off-Duty Management. Off-Duty Management provides off-duty job administrative services and comprehensive liability insurance to officers and agencies at no cost. For more information on Off-Duty Management, visit offdutymanagement.com.